Hello, I'm excited you found your way here. I'm your host, Ashley Rennick, and you're listening to Waldorfy. In each episode, I explore and explain Waldorf education and its anthroposophical roots. Hello, everybody, and thank you for listening in. In this episode, I'm speaking with returning guest and listener favorite Megan Rose Wilson of Whole Family Rhythms all about Waldorf and early childhood. As a reminder, this month, we're doing a huge Patreon drive to increase podcast support through membership. What's Patreon? Patreon is a platform where you can support creators like myself to create content that you love with a small monthly contribution. There's also bonus content over there in that space that you can't access anywhere else. I talk more about that bonus content in the trailer for the season, which can be found at waldorfy.com forward slash season six trailer. In September, in addition to starting to offer more bonus content to Patreon members, we're also doing some awesome giftaways for randomly selected Patreon supporters. I'm giving away a gift certificate for $100 to my favorite baby carrier company, Sakura Bloom. Sakura Bloom is also offering all Waldorfy listeners free shipping, by the way. Just use the coupon code Waldorfy at checkout. Their site, if you want to check them out, is sakurabloom.com. So again, that $100 Sakura Bloom gift card from Waldorfy will be gifted to a randomly selected Patreon supporter. Also, you can find all the details about the giftaways for Patreon members at the Patreon site, which is patreon.com forward slash Walderfee. That's also where you can become a member. So other gifts will be gifting away to the Patreon supporters, a $100 gift card to Palumba. Palumba offers the best Walderfee toys, books, and art supplies, a one-year subscription to Sparkle Stories. This is huge. You'll get to hear me speak more about Palumba and Sparkle Stories later in this episode. One Patreon supporter will be randomly selected to receive one place in Megan Wilson's autumn course, routine, ritual, Rhythm and Reverence, Autumn in the Home. I'll be speaking with Megan more about that course later in this episode also. We're also gifting away three Patreon supporters one-year subscriptions to Toy Making Magic. Have you wanted to make your own Waldorf toys? Now you can. Each month through Jessica's video subscription service, you can create your own Waldorf toys made with love of materials you can choose yourself. So all of these lovely gifts will be gifted again to Patreon supporters in a drawing where we'll be randomly selecting recipients for each gift. And we'll do that on October 2nd, 2021, except for the drawing from Megan's course, which we'll do on the 25th of September, 2021, since that course starts on September 30th. So you'll just want to make sure that you sign up to become a Patreon supporter before September 25th if you're interested in potentially receiving one of these lovely gifts. Also know that you can cancel your Patreon support at any time. Obviously, I would so love for you to support forever, but you can cancel your support, be that $1, $3, $5, or $20 in any month. Again, the place to learn more about Patreon membership, the giftaways, bonus content, etc. is patreon.com forward slash Waldorfy, and Patreon is P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Now let me introduce you to my guest, Megan. Megan Wilson is a parent educator and author of the now-retired seasonal series of Whole Family Rhythms. After finishing a BA, she went on to complete her foundations in Steiner Education and Anthroposophy at Sydney Steiner College, as well as her Waldorf Early Childhood Certification at the Rudolf Steiner Center in Toronto. She has received her certification as a Simplicity Parenting Family Life Coach and has supported hundreds of parents to create a strong family rhythm unique to their own values and culture. She 
has four young children currently attending their local Waldorf school. Megan provides printable resources, courses, and coaching to parents who are looking for a bridge to cross between their unique family life and their children's often, but not always, Waldorf schools. Well, welcome back, Megan. Thank you so much for speaking with me today about this Waldorf early childhood phase. So I always like to start because it's kind of the beginning, like the roots of uh, where everything started with what, if any, indications did Steiner give about this, I'll use the word preschool age child, you know, ages three, four. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's, there's actually very little to no direct communication from Steiner about this age group. There have been some people, uh, there was a woman named Elizabeth Grunelius, I think is how you pronounce her last name. And apparently she was the one who received like the first indication for this age group from Rudolf Steiner. And she wrote a book called The Early Childhood Education and Waldorf School Plan. But again, it was more directed towards kindergarten. But otherwise, you're looking more at from like an anthroposophical point of view, like the view of human development and Steiner's indications about how humans develop from birth all the way through life. Um, that's really the only indications he gave for this age group. And so because there's there's not very much out there and it's hard to find really kind of what I consider like the most Waldorfy indications for this age group are the nine essentials of Waldorf early childhood education. And I think uh, Susan Howard was the one, I hope I got that right, um, who first kind of penned these down and, you know, group put them into groups and, and identified these like nine essentials. So I can go over those if you want me to. I love them. Like uh, everything that I do is based off of these nine essentials. Yes, perfect. Okay, so the first one, and they're, they're kind of, they're nine, but they're, they're in groups of like two or three or four. So the first one is love and warmth. And you'll find that in any Waldorf early childhood setting, it's like the most essential component, having this sense of warmth in the classroom, both physically and um, spiritually, emotionally. So there's love from the teacher. There's a warm environment. You often see like natural materials like um, sheepskins. Uh, there's always carpets on the floor to keep toes warm. And usually children are wearing slippers. Uh, there's candles that are kind of bringing that brightness, even though it's not like a hot fire, it still brings this warmth and, to the atmosphere. So that's one of them. Uh, there's care for the environment and nourishment of the senses. And there, um, you know, it again, that's almost um, radiating that that loving sense for our environment and the place that we're in and the things that we have and um, modeling that gratitude and um, care for the things that we have. And the nourishment of the senses, again, it's like, um, what are the children feeling and touching and uh, hearing and smelling? Uh, everything is is very beautiful and nurturing and nourishing in a Waldorf early childhood setting. And then the third is creative and artistic experience. Um, and that can be with like domestic arts, like something really simple, like a a teacher mending something and the, the children might come and see what they're doing. Or it can be a, a painting experience for kind of older preschool children or drawing with crayons. Then the fourth is meaningful adult activity as an example for the child's imitation. 
And that one is is so big. I was in a mentoring for a school recently, and the teachers aren't they're not Waldorf trained, and they were very trying to be engaged in active play with the children. And it's actually not what is indicated for preschools at all. The the teachers when they're engaged in this like very meaningful activity that's uh, more adult oriented, like mending something or cooking something or baking something or um, tending to a garden outside, you know, there's these very kind of human archetypes for the children to imitate there. And then the children can either be involved in their own inspirational um, imaginative play, or they can look onto the adult and kind of imitate what the adult is doing. So that's a really important one. Uh, the next, as I just said, is, is free imaginative play. So making sure that there are opportunities, a lot of opportunities for free imaginative play for children. And uh, like I said, again, when adults get involved, the more an adult gets involved in play, the less it becomes that like really free imaginative child play because adults, we, we just really lose that ability. Then the next one is protective for the, uh, protection for the forces of childhood. And uh, I think that's like leaning into this idea that, you know, it's really important that children have time to learn and grow developmentally without a huge amount of academics, uh, a huge amount of like sitting and uh, that rote learning, you know, especially young children, they, they learn a lot through that play and that movement. And so it's, it's protecting um, what is important for this age developmentally. The next three that are in a group are gratitude, reverence, and wonder. And you hear a lot of um, those words at Waldorf schools. So again, the teacher models gratitude in a blessing or just simply by mending, you know, a, a shirt that they have so that they're showing like, I'm, I'm grateful for this shirt. I, um, I'm not going to take it for granted and fixing it up. All of this is like nonverbal and just through modeling. Uh, reverence would be maybe being out in nature and seeing uh, something beautiful, a beautiful flower. And again, the teacher might uh, really, they, they have that inner work where they can see something like that and they might go over and smell it and appreciate it and not go directly into a verbal explanation of what that flower is and why it's so beautiful and it comes out and so on and so forth, just really modeling the reverence and, and wonder for nature. And then the eighth is joy, humor, and happiness, which is that levity that teachers can bring. And, and it's something that I think a lot of parents struggle with at home because you're so focused on holding boundaries and doing all of these things, getting things done, getting meals on the table, that the the joy and the humor and kind of like that happiness, it's hard to switch back and forth between holding a boundary and then bringing that levity. Uh, but it is a really important component to early childhood. And then finally, uh, I mentioned before, adult caregivers on a path of inner development. And again, yeah, if it, you know, it's with like with everything in life, if you're not on that kind of path of inner knowing and inner development, and you're not acting from a, a more conscious place, and you're going into autopilot, then you know, that's when we can be triggered or uh, act irrationally or impatiently or whatever it is. So the more kind of awake we are to our own tendencies or yeah, then the, the more conscious we can be with the children. My own little three-year-old just started his uh, early 
childhood journey. Two days a week, he's doing two half days. And it's been such a transition. And he's actually there right now. <laughs> I'm mm. thinking of him. I'm wondering if you can tell us about what a typical day looks like in a Waldorf early childhood place. Maybe we can start by actually coming back to why this is called Waldorf early childhood and we don't really call it Waldorf preschool. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's different everywhere what it's called at, at here because if they're not in kind a kindergarten age, it's called a child care because um, there's certain government regulations that the child care needs to meet. So they just call it child care. It used to be called preschool before that. So I haven't heard, so you call it, so early childhood actually in like the Waldorf realm is anywhere between birth and seven, which also includes kindergarten. So all of those indications that I just gave also, they're also for kindergartens. It's just a little bit um, more refined uh, for the younger child, but it's still the same indications. Yes, I guess it's at our school that we do call the kindergartens, which is four to six kindergartens. But I feel like in a lot of schools, there are different, a lot of them actually are called child care for under four. Mm -hmm. um, and I, my thought was, and I'm asking you now, I guess, is do you think that that's perhaps they're not using the reference of preschool because their academics are present are not presented in like the traditional way as you might see in a traditional preschool or kindergarten setting? Maybe, but they haven't changed the word kindergarten and the kindergarten, it couldn't be more different than in a conventional setting versus a Waldorf setting. That's true. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> but may yeah, maybe they've avoided that word. Honestly, I think it's more to do with like the bureaucratic governmental words and what they have to call it in order to get grants, at least here in Canada. Um, I think that's how it works. But it, you're right. Like it isn't school in the traditional academic sense for sure. So what happens in that typical day then in the mm -hmm childcare or I guess we'll just reference it as kind of the before kindergarten years. I know yeah. my son's classes, I think their kids may be as young as 20 months actually up to like three and a half, maybe just barely four. Yeah, there's uh, there's different groupings at my son's school, um, my children's school. Um, and the youngest I think is like 15 months. Uh, and there's like a little group of like one and two year olds. So it does differ by age. And it also differs by school, climate, uh, just individual teacher and their preferences. So in my experience with four children, all of their preschool experiences actually have been quite different, um, depending on where they are and who they're with. So but there there are elements that are all the same. It's just the flow of the rhythm is different. So generally, uh, parents drop off their, their child, and then um, the child can immediately go into uh, like free imaginative play with their peers. Uh, sometimes they drop off, parents drop off, and the children are all outside for an hour or an hour and a half. And sometimes they're inside first for an hour, hour and a half. So that's one thing that is just different between schools. There's also some schools that do more of like an outdoor program and almost everything is outdoors. But yeah, there's this like centering in on free imaginative play. And usually uh, in a lot of Waldorf classes that are fortunate enough to have that kitchen in the classroom, the teacher and their assistant 
have their aprons on. You, they always have their apron on uh, inside and they're cooking up the warm morning snack, which is usually a grain of some sort. So oats or millet or barley. And while the teachers are working on this meaningful work, the children are playing, but the children also have the option to help here and there if they want to. They might be peeling apples that day or grinding wheat for the bread or doing something like that. And, and the teachers will be engaged in that work. And then the young children can um, come up and help if they want. Generally, at this really young age, there's no insisting that children help with uh, a lot of that work, unless it's a part of the rhythm. So maybe cleaning up after snack and bringing their dish to a little tub and scrubbing it or something like that, that might be a part of the rhythm and they do it every day. But a lot of the work like um, watering the plants, that's, that's kind of optional because the idea is that if a child is deeply engaged in imaginative play and having, you know, lots of fun um, expressing themselves, they don't, it's really not helpful to interrupt that play to then bring them into something else. You know, that actually playing for lo those long uninterrupted periods of time, are it's like one of the first experiences a child has of holding their attention span for a while. And as adults, we're often in a hurry, especially at home, or we want to have your child get dressed or eat or whatever it is, and we interrupt the play a lot. So the opportunities at in childcare for children to have those like longer sessions of play are really important. What else then they they always, uh, they often have like scheduled bathroom breaks in the rhythm where all the children will have an opportunity to go to the bathroom at the same time. Um, multiple times a day, just so that uh, because a lot of them are in the middle of toilet training or have just finished toilet training. And so they make it a part of the rhythm instead of up to the child to decide when they individually need to go. Um, and obviously, there's there's always even pre COVID, there was hand washing before or sorry, hand washing after they use the bathroom, hand washing always before they eat snack and lunch. And that's again, another part of the rhythm. Then they might transition either from outside or inside to a snack. They would always say a blessing and have um, a little candle lit and uh, eat together. There's not a huge amount of talking at the table because I think they, they again, they want to kind of keep this mood of like reverence and enjoying the food and not getting too silly. Children can sometimes be picky at this age. So it's, um, it's good if they can all kind of see each other eating and then they um, unconsciously kind of imitate each other. So a lot of parents say that they're their child's a very picky eater at home and the teacher will say, oh, they're eating great at school because they're they're kind of going with the group and they're a little bit more open to trying new things. Um, then they would probably transition maybe to, depending on the age, if they're um, in that kind of three to four-year-old range, they might do a little circle time. Um, but it's not, uh, it's very different than a, a kindergarten circle time, which would be everyone in like a formed circle and walking around in the circle and doing big movements and um, saying things together. It's kind of a smaller thing where the children might not be in, even in a circle. They might just be kind of spread out on a carpet and the children or the teachers leading them in a finger play or saying some nursery rhymes or singing some songs or maybe telling them a little puppet story, but much 
shorter than the ones in kindergarten um, and much more simple. After that, they might transition to outside time. Um, you know, and so any of these elements can be kind of like swapped around. It's just really depends on the program and the teachers. Um, and then they might transition to outside time until lunch, they'd have a big outside play, the exact same as inside applies that the teachers are doing meaningful work, maybe gardening or raking or picking up sticks on that that has fallen on the ground that night or whatever it is, or arranging um, flowers and bringing them inside. Um, and the children are again in free imaginative play and they often have um, access to climbing things, access to kind of sensory things like sand, dirt. Um, and if they want to be involved in the meaningful work, they can be, but they, they, they don't have to be. And then they would transition in for lunch. Then they would have uh, a lunch. I think it really depends on the program, whether it's a hot lunch served by the school or they bring their own. But the, again, there would be the washing of hands, a blessing, and then they'd have a, a good amount of time to really sit around the table and enjoy lunch. And again, like because of COVID, so many different things have changed and um, there might be more spacing. There might be like they might not all sit around one big table anymore. They might be more spaced out. I'm not 100% sure how every program, I'm sure every program is doing it differently. They might even, I think a lot of schools, including my children's, they're having a picnic lunch outside because it, then they're taking their masks off and eating outside. And then after lunch, they, they would always have a rest. So that's definitely a universal. Rest time is like a non-negotiable all the way up through senior kindergarten. And it is like a good hour or hour and a half. And for the children who don't actually nap, which there's very few who don't in preschool, even if they don't nap at home, they still need to lie down and have like a very quiet, silent time for a good 30, 45 minutes. And then if they're still not napping, often the, the non-nappers will get up and do something very quietly, like look at picture books or do some drawing or something like that until they wake up the rest of the nappers. And then generally... All of the children transition outside again, and then it's pickup time. So yeah, that's that's a general description of what I've experienced with my four children and what I've observed in classrooms as a teacher. But even 10 years ago, it, what I just described is a lot more than what happened because up until maybe 10, 15 years ago, the preschool experience was a half day. And it's only been in the past like 10, 15 years that the that that has um, shifted to a child care. You know, one of the important aspects of the child care is that both parents can go and work the full day. So even that has really changed a lot over the past 10 or 15 years because they've had to create a program for very young children all day long instead of a, a simple half day normally or, you know, in the past it had been maybe 8, 30 or 9 until 12 and the children went home for lunch. Yeah, I found that really interesting. I remember my husband and I were remembering when we were little that we went to, you know, before kindergarten, pre-kindergarten. It was something like you said, 8, 39 to even 11, 30, 12. And now they do the lunch there. And I have to say, I live very, very close to our school. But I can imagine when I grew up, I lived far from our Waldorf school. And it would be would have been very nice for my mom. Uh, my mom actually didn't send 
my littler sisters to kindergarten because it just wouldn't have worked out with me being in first grade and then second grade because where would she have done lunch? Like it was just, it was, we lived 30 minutes away, you know? So I think for mm-hmm. a lot of parents, um, for sure, the childcare s- timing where they can be more available to be working during the day is really nice. But then also for the parents who commute, it must be really nice too to get the lunch option. We have a half day option at our school that goes till one. So the children kind of eat the lunch that's prepared kind of together and they can leave at one. And then there's the Mm -hmm. quiet rest nap time after that. And the children that stay for the full day then kind of go into that as part of the rhythm. So yeah, that's very different than when I was little, for sure. I think there is no debating the benefits of getting outside with your little ones. The fresh air, splashing in puddles and streams, playing in the mud, drawing in the sand. I can't think of a better way to entertain and enrich my toddler's development than the natural world around us. But to truly enjoy the outdoors, it takes great gear. So let me tell you, you're going to love Oki. Okiware has spent the last decade perfecting kids' rain and snow gear. From their best-selling trail suits to their merino wool socks, Oki is the head-to-toe outdoor apparel brand for kids. Oki wants to support parents and educators in the important work of facilitating outdoor learning through play and exploration. I know things in the last year have changed a lot for school programs all over, and it's no different for our local Waldorf school. So much more of my three-year-old's class is taking place outside than ever before. However, as the weather here in New England changes from cooler and wetter to colder and snowier, I know we're covered with our gear from Oki. And don't think Oki is just for those of us living here in the cold north. In the winter, when my family travels to Florida for three months, we can't live without our comfortable light rain boots and lightweight rain suit. They even offer their awesome rain suits for adults too. We can't miss out on any of the fun of playing out in the rain and snow, and neither should you. Now, Oki is offering Waldorfy listeners 15% off their purchase by using the coupon code Waldorfy15 at checkout. How great is that? So if you don't want to miss out on a minute of the glory of being outdoors in nature, then head over to Oki.com so you can stay dry and warm this season. As they say at Oki, there's no such thing as bad weather, only bad clothes. I think most of you know by now how much I truly love all things Waldorf. What can I say? It's what I was fortunate enough to get to experience as a child, and now I'm so enjoying learning more about all of it with you listeners as an adult. You know the Waldorf goodies are beautiful, but where do you find that quality selection of Waldorf toys, books, and art supplies? Well, you needn't look any further than Palumba. Palumba, loosely meaning wooden dove, was formed in 2007 to fill the need for the desire to have safe, high-quality, all-natural toys made in the U.S. Palumba's selection of products are carefully chosen to ensure that they're made of wood, wool, silk, and cotton along with other natural materials. Palumba is also the only retailer that features the complete Camden Rose line. Camden Rose's commitment to durability, beauty, natural, and renewable materials make them the American leader in eco-friendly natural toy and children's furniture design. A handful of items come from a women's cooperative in Peru, while the majority of items are made in the U.S. At Palumba, they believe that imaginative, open-ended play with simple toys crafted from beautiful, natural materials offers children warmth and a sense of well-being when discovering their world. If you've listened to this show before or follow on social media, you know that Palumba is my favorite place to get all the quality Waldorf things. I would so love for you to check them out. You can shop their selection of Waldorf toys, books, and art supplies at their website, palumba.com. That's P-A-L-U-M. And you must have experienced something so different having 
gone through, and it's the rhythms that are followed. You just talked about the daily rhythm in the classroom, but the seasonal rhythm, of course, is huge with Mm -hmm. the Waldorf approach. So I'd love if you could speak to the difference, your own experience between, I feel like so much with Waldorf is all about like the Northern Hemisphere. I know I've spoken about this with you maybe once or twice before that um, my family goes to Southern Florida for the winter for my husband's work. And it's like, I feel like all discombobulated and trying to like feel connected and grounded there because our rhythms are so rooted um, and like songs and traditions for us are so rooted here in the Northeast. So you've had the experience of both. So could you speak about um, kind of your experience with having young children uh, in the Southern Hemisphere and the Northern Hemisphere? Yeah, I mean, one of the beautiful parts about coming back to Canada was that it was like a home away from home, having my children go back into a Waldorf school. But I, I'd say that the biggest difference is there was much more outdoor time and outdoor play just generally in Australia. And it was obviously, I, I think it was more also because there's so much less time putting on all the gear. <laughs> so so it's just a matter of putting on your shoes and maybe a light jacket in the winter and going outside. Whereas here, it's a, you know, if you can imagine 15 to 20 preschoolers and trying to get all of them into their full snowsuits and boots and hats and mitts, you know, that is a huge amount of time spent just getting ready to go outside. So they still go outside no matter what the weather uh, in the Northern Hemisphere, but it's a very different experience. So you just feel a lot closer to the outside in Australia. The only other difference, I mean, obviously, seasonally, they followed a similar wheel of the year only backwards. It was kind of before they were trying to branch out a little bit from those European traditions. Uh, But sometimes they just skipped traditions altogether. There was never a maypole, anything. Uh, And then there was, although I think my children were just too young for that, they might have done it in the middle school. They did, instead of doing like a lantern walk and then a a Michaelmas festival and all of that, they kind of just bunched it into a harvest festival. And that was obviously uh, at a, the opposite time of year than here. But the probably the biggest difference in Australia for us, which wasn't really by hemisphere was that my second child, my eldest daughter went to uh, a family Waldorf daycare. And so there were only four other children in that program. And that experience versus, you know, um, more of a school, a preschool experience where there's 15 to 20 children, which my other three children have experienced in Australia and Canada. It was amazing. And I highly recommend it to anyone who has that amazing, beautiful opportunity. They're hard to find, but for very young children, um, it's, it's just so much more kind of calming and nourishing for their nerves because a big group of children it's it's a lot for a two and three year old and they're not really playing socially they they don't have that that kind of developmental ability fine-tuned yet there there's a lot more parallel play they call it where one child is playing parallel to another child but they're not really involved with each other yet and so when there's a smaller group it was just um it, it was it mimicked a real home environment much more than a traditional preschool did. And so that was a really beautiful experience for her. And I felt that she um, was less clingy, 
less kind of exhausted at the end of the day, less emotional and less, less overtired than my other children were having experienced the big school experience. But I mean, both are beautiful. It's just, there is something really special for the very young children to have that kind of family daycare experience. Yes. And they are out there. And I feel like maybe I'll link to this on the show notes page for this episode. A lot of I've met a a few moms who run this kind of program within their home who um, worked out of Lifeways North America. Um, So lifewaysnorthamerica.org may be a good place to find these places to send children that are so lovely. That's what my husband actually went to when he was younger. Because when my husband and I were little attending Waldorf, there weren't really Waldorf preschools. I don't know when they evolved I, or maybe some Waldorf schools had them, but we didn't. Um, and our Waldorf school has been around for a long, long time here. And we were just we were just trying to remember if there was even preschool when we graduated like eighth grade in high school and and we couldn't remember it even being there. So it's a fairly, would you say it's a fairly new, I want to say <laughs> branch or part of the Waldorf curriculum? Yeah, it is. And I mean, it's a new branch of all schools, not just Waldorf. I have a mentor named Ilsa Black, and she said that when she began at the school, uh, she worked with the parent and child teacher. And essentially, the parent and child teacher had, you know, one or two mornings a week with the parent and the small child, like a three or four year old, and they would be together the entire time. And then when the child was ready you know, maybe four to five years old before they entered kindergarten, they would do this transition where the um, parent would come in for half of the morning with the teacher, you know, in a group of like maybe five, six, seven. And then slowly the parent would kind of exit from the rhythm over time over like a couple months, I think. And then Um, And then they would have this kind of basic preschool. But again, it was like there wasn't even a lunch. It was just a morning program. And it was just this really slow, beautiful transition from being with the parent in that school experience to being in like more of an independent school experience. So I'm wondering now how we can bring some of these principles into the home. Uh, One of the things that I noticed going to an uh, parent-child class with my first son and now seeing him begin the day in this um, early childhood program that he's in is the transitions look so easy and smooth. I think I think of my son's teacher as this like priestess of early childhood. I'm just, mm-hmm. she's like a wizard with, she's got a full class. I think, you know, with an assistant, she maybe has 12 kids and they just like follow her from place to place. I mean, transitions in my life with my three-year-old are like the most hellish times in my day. So mm-hmm. I'm especially thinking of that moment transitions, but how can we, how can we bring some of these components into our home life with young children? Yeah, I think there's so much that we can recreate. There are some things that we can't. And there is really something to be said about a group because children at this age are so influenced by imitation. And when there's a group of children all kind of doing something together, then that your child is so much more likely to do it because the group is doing it. And, and for some miraculous, wonderful reason, they don't all figure it out. Figure out that if they all protest, <laughs> then they're all going to imitate each other, and it's going to be mayhem. For some miraculous reason, the majority of the children in that moment in time do imitate what the teacher is asking or modeling, and then the ones that might be feeling resistant 
will often follow suit. Not always, but that's generally how it goes in a classroom. In at home, it's very different because you've got that like one-on-one -on -one experience or maybe like a couple siblings, there's different ages. So they're at uh, different developmental points. And so um, I just like, before I give you, oh yes, you can do this, this, and this. I just want to say like, honor the fact that a home environment is very different than like a school preschool environment. And so it is always going to be feel different and, and maybe be a little bit more challenging than it would be for teachers at school. And Thank then, you for that. It's <laughs> making me feel a lot better about myself. <laughs> and then on top of that, you've got the added element of the fact that you are the parent, you're with them all day long, you're doing the inner work, but um, you know, you have this like special, unique, I mean, I don't want to get too esoteric, but like this karmic relationship with your children. And it it's very different than the relationship with the teacher and the child. Children know it instinctively, intuitively, that another authority, another adult, it's like they can't push boundaries in the same way. Most children are very conscious of that. So it is like very different at home. Can you bring a lot of these elements into home? Absolutely. And it's um, really nourishing and helpful for children. But you know, so for example, with your uh, question about transitions, I'd say um, the the most important thing with transitions is like, how can you make your day more uh, predictable? And so it's the same each and every day, so that then the child kind of knows that what's coming and what's to be expected. If, if each day in the week is different in terms of the routine and the schedule, it's going to be a little bit harder for the child to transition from one thing to another. But let's say um, you have a baby and you go to pick up your toddler every day at preschool at 11am, you leave the house and you have the one year old that you have to bring with you. So there's a transition right there. You know, maybe there's little things that you can set up each day at that time so that they're kind of like cues for him or her to know that it's time to get ready to get in the car and go pick up the sibling. Maybe you pack a little snack for them or bring their favorite water bottle or um, have like a little stuffy in the car, something that's like a visual cue for them. And then, you know, they, they're already starting to see that it's almost time for that transition. Maybe you sing a little song before you get your shoes on each, each day before you go, so on and so forth. And then maybe also ask yourself that question, like, why is this transition so hard? Is it because I haven't left enough time to make the transition in the first place because uh, small children take so much time to do anything. And so often the transition is hard for an adult because we really need to stay on schedule and get somewhere. And maybe we haven't left enough time to move from one point A to point B. The other elements that maybe you could bring in, I, I mean, all of those nine essentials you can bring into your home, but the, the most important thing and the thing that is hardest to come by, especially nowadays, is like uninterrupted free play. And it's hard because we have lots of things to do and we're often, you know, running about and doing errands. But also it, it's difficult because like if, if a child is watching something or using media, then that's not um, free uninterrupted play either. And so it's allowing those spaces, those big opportunities for children to actually play. It's also trickier too, if you have an only child or you have a child and a younger sibling that's not really ready to play yet, because then you have to encourage independent play, which um, 
is for sure much more challenging than when you have a little group of siblings who can play together. But it is still very important for children to have those like quiet moments outside and inside to just like engage and play and imagine on their own. We did not really get to touch on this. And we did already an episode uh, with Faith Collins on the show talking about the littler toddlers like two. But I'm wondering, because it comes up in this phase too, the you know, preschool, young child age uh, with toilet training. And I'm wondering it, what your insights are into this phase. What uh, is the right timing? Or even if there's a quote unquote Waldorf approach to toilet training, which I don't think there is, but um, I'm wondering kind of what, what your insights are into that um, for readiness and then what's worked for you and your, your little ones. Um, yeah, I don't think that there's like a real Waldorf approach. I think that because the child pairs are in age groupings, so obviously the very little ones, they don't need to be toilet trained. But traditionally, again, before there were like these very early, early child cares for very young children, for the like three and a half to four and a half, five-year-old, they were required to be toilet trained before they entered into that preschool. Um, yeah, with I can only really speak from my experience with my four children. I can say that the earlier that we did it, the easier it was. It does depend on the child's personality. I did do cloth diapers and regular diapers for different siblings. And I can definitely say that the children that were in cloth diapers learned to toilet train faster. And uh, there is like a lot of anecdotal stuff about that. Um, in general, it, it went pretty smoothly for all of my children. We didn't make a big deal about it. I understood that it was like a, a nonlinear progression, which um, Willow Westwood has actually a beautiful article on my website on toilet training. So I think if you, you could put it in the show notes, but if you Google Megan Rose Wilson toilet training, you'll find her article. She works in like a, she worked in an early childhood preschool in Brooklyn and she had um, some beautiful tips, but yeah, it's this nonlinear progression where a lot of the time uh, adults, you know, we think we just need to take step A, B, C, D, E, and then we'll get to F. But with toilet training, sometimes it's like trying, trying again, fail for a little while, maybe they're not old enough, maybe try a couple months later, I did have that experience with one of my daughters, and she just needed more time. And so she was probably closer to two and a half by the time she was mostly toilet trained, whereas my others were um, maybe just before two or just over two, which is on the earlier end, but they had cloth diapers and they just have those personalities, I think, too. When you're actually going to embark in toilet training, I think, you know, that all those like really uh, old, uh, what, what are those, what are those called? Like the grandma's tales or the old wives tales, like saying like doing it in the summer, like it makes perfect sense. Do it in warm weather where they can run around without a diaper and they don't, you know, it's okay if they have an accident and you're outside a lot. That's for sure a, a great tip. And so maybe you're going to wait, even though your child's two and you think, oh, they're almost ready. Like maybe you'll wait three or four more months when the weather's nicer and it's just a much easier transition. You can clear your house of, of rugs and carpets and things like that. Uh, you know, stay in small spaces for that first like couple days because 
really what happens is like when you take off the diaper for those first few days, you're going to have more accidents than not. And so really, it's just allowing the child to experience this is what going pee is and how I feel when I'm wet. And you can pee in the toilet instead. Another tip I would have is like find a potty that they feel safe on and that they're comfortable with. A lot of the ones that like sit on a big toilet can be really scary for some children and they feel like they're falling in and they have to climb up this big thing. And so having one of those tiny little potties that they can sit on uh, is often just more comforting for them. Uh, That said, it could be like reverse and some children really have a problem uh, going poo on a, a little potty because it's like smelly and it's right there and they would rather go on the real toilet where it goes in the water and you flush it goodbye. So you kind of have to play with your child and their personality and what they're leaning towards and what they're interested in. I would never punish a child for having an accident, never bribe them to use the toilet. It's just going to set you up for, I mean, it's it's awful <laughs> to punish a child for something that's natural. It's going to create fear and just like bad associations. Um, but also kind of bribing them or doing reward systems, it just distracts them from what they're actually doing. And, and it creates like another step that's kind of nonsensical. And it's like one of those things for adults where we we want to do it because we think that it's going to be like a positive association or like a positive motivator, but it's hopefully like using the toilet and transitioning out of diapers is, uh, and kind of like they're intrinsically motivated to do that when they're ready. Um, yeah. So that, that's kind of my thoughts on the reward punishment thing. And then finally, I guess when you find venture out of the house, I would recommend bringing a portable potty wherever you go in case there is an urge there and bringing lots of extra clothes wherever you go. Again, not making a big deal about an accident, just changing, saying it's, you know, fine, staying really calm, and then, um, you know, cleaning up and that's it. Those are all the things that I did to transition through. Generally, if my child wasn't trained within uh like mostly having very little accidents in like three or four weeks, then I think they they weren't really ready. And so I, I think I, I waited like a month or two and then tried again. Yeah. And then like not making a big deal of that too, probably, right? Yeah, no. I mean, yeah. And I wouldn't recommend that as like a default because you kind of want to fully um, – dedicate yourself this commitment, like you're going to potty train, that means you're going to just take the diapers off, waffling back and forth and back and forth also is really unhelpful for the child. So it's kind of making the decision, not wearing diapers the whole day, every day. And if it's still really not working, and you think, you know, maybe it was a mistake, and they're much too young, then transitioning back to diapers all the time, not talking about it again, not the, the the waffling back and forth every day. And sometimes you can wear a diaper and sometimes you can wear underwear. I think that's when it's really not helpful. You can buy for my first child, there's like underwear that's really leak proof. And I was potty training him, but I went, I wanted to go to the gym, like maybe twice a week. And I would put him in what they called in Australia, a creche where it's like a little um, child care for an hour actually at the gym. And so I didn't want to put him back in diapers, but I knew he could have an accident. So I put him in those for that 
um, for that time. And they still kind of, they have that sensation of a cloth diaper where he still could feel that he was wet and that he had had, you know, an accident. Yeah. And I know for night training, it's a whole other, well, I say training. What I've heard actually is that they are not really ready to go at night until they're ready to go through the night. And there's not really like even training to be done. That could be like, yeah. this could really be an entire episode, but p- parents oh, I'm sure can like kind of look into that, you know, more yeah, as the well. Night, the night training is totally them. And I, that was my experience for sure. I had one that was dry through the night at one and a half years old and another who wasn't dry through the night until I think she was like four, maybe even four and a half. Every time, even if she had a nap at school, she had an accident. So it really just depends on the child. And I guess whether the, it's it's something to do with like how deeply they're sleeping and their body's ability to kind of wake themselves up if they are have that sensation. I don't know the science behind it, but yeah, it's so individual and it's so different for every child. Have you been looking for something specially crafted to entertain and enrich your child's developing mind? Wouldn't it be amazing if this content promoted values like kindness, empathy, and respect to help build a gentler world? Would you love a break but feel a little guilty about turning the TV on? Then you're going to be pretty excited to learn about Sparkle Stories. With Sparkle Stories, your family can enjoy a world of 1,300 plus original audio stories for ages three and up. Sparkle Stories is dedicated to helping the world go a little slower and be a little kinder. Their audio-only approach invites children to adventure, wonder, and dream in a safe and secure way. Audio stories are a low-pressure way to make even the shyest of readers hungry for more adventure and learning. My older son is three and a half, and I love that I can search for stories based on his age or story topic. For him, I love that the stories are recorded slowly for young ears, ensuring maximum comprehension and enjoyment. It's been such a nice way to build a quiet rest time into our active days. I've also gifted Sparkle Stories to my six-year-old niece twice now, and I know she enjoys the longer tales and ongoing series. My favorite thing about Sparkle Stories, it is such a great alternative to the TV. Their audio-only stories spur children to use their imaginations and grow their curiosity compared to image-based entertainment like TV. Especially having our new little one in the house, I love using Sparkle Stories to keep my three-year-old's mind engaged and having fun while I get things done. I've teamed up with Sparkle Stories to offer an extended 30-day free trial so you can enjoy the entire library of Sparkle Stories, over 1,300 original audio stories for ages three and up, and you can trust me, you will enjoy. To sign up, just visit sparklestories.com forward slash sign up and use code Waldorfy and know that this coupon code is just good through the end of 2021, so don't delay. I just love Sparkle Stories selection of gentle stories for growing minds. Yes. So something that's also different for every child, and I just went through this this year, is getting a new sibling. I This is the hardest thing that I've ever experienced with my son. And I was pretty prepared because my closest friend with children has the sweetest peanut daughter ever and also very different than my son who is very active and very kind of wild and running around like jumping up and down on the stairs, like up and down the stairs from a really young age, ladders, like the whole thing, probably watching Mm -hmm. my husband doing acrobatics and thinking I'm going for it. (laughs) Um, So she, my friend's daughter also had a hard adjustment to be becoming a sibling at, you know, a little over two and a half. And she was really intense towards her little brother. And it kind of came out of nowhere because she was, you know, changing her baby doll's diapers and like being so gentle. And 
for them, I think it was that transition was kind of shocking. So at, at very least, I was prepared for it to be hard, I guess. And my son, he has baby dolls. He never, almost never plays with them. I mean, occasion, very rarely. And so I just kind of was thinking, oh, maybe he'll just, you know, like ignore his new sibling when they come. And he, I, I'm going to tell you, Megan, he was full out violent against my mm-hmm. newborn. And I was just, it was so hard not to freak out. And I just kept coming back to, I am really love Janet Lansbury and her podcast, just trying to stay unruffled because I feel like in that moment of transition, that was really one of the best things I could do to support him and what he was going through. So I'm wondering, like, nobody talks about that, that that's mm-hmm. part, can be part of this transition and that it's, it's normal. And also your child isn't, completely crazy. You know, they're still your little loving child and that's just how they're dealing with a transition. So I'm wondering, you have four children. So you've seen this transition and I've heard from many people that from one to two is the hardest, but how could we help children through this huge phase of shift and change and and getting a new sibling? Yeah. It's, it's, it's funny that you mentioned Janet Lansbury because Literally, that's all the the biggest recommendation I can give is to go to Janet Lansbury's uh, website and podcast, Google sibling rivalry or like new siblings. And she has such a wealth of information and just a really clear approach on how to manage it. I mean, I have to say, I don't know, I was really lucky and none unless I'm just I've got baby mom brain and I can't remember very well which is which is might be a possibility none of my children were ever really rough with their siblings they definitely wanted to hold them all the time carry them all the time like you know they were very loud and disruptive which can be also a challenge for a mom especially with a second child because you're used to that like pristine perfect like kind of bubbly environment for your newborn baby and then you realize that, you know, you're not going to have that. That was a, a really hard transition for me. Like when I was trying to get my my second child to sleep for her like second and maybe even third naps. And she was such a fussy. She was one of those babies that wouldn't sleep for more than 40 minutes at a time. And I just wanted her to have one long nap in the afternoon so I could just get something done. And my son Um, was only, you know, a little bit over two when she was going through that phase. And he was like coming in and out of the room and talking and like making noise and whatever it was. And I had a really hard time like letting go and just accepting the fact that she was going to have a different experience than him. And I think that that is a part of it is just accepting the fact that these these siblings, they came in in this order, and they aren't going to have the same experience as as the first child did. There is going to be more noise, they're going to be more resilient, they're going to experience, you know, that kind of more a little bit more rough handling here and there. Of course, like there are so many things like Janet says that you can do acknowledging their feelings, holding the boundary. So saying uh, something like I can't let you Uh, hurt your sister, or I can't let you pick her up like that. And then maybe giving an alternative of what they can do. If they're really expressing big emotions, you know, observing them and saying, I can see that you're feeling this way, reminding them that those feelings are normal. That's a big thing. So saying like, um, you know, a lot of big brothers feel like this when they have a new baby, it's really hard being a big brother sometimes. So really empathizing with them, I think that goes a long way. We did try we, we have really made an effort and it's so hard with four children. 
but to get one-on-one time with each child. My And it's interesting, like, I think that they also want like ask for that more like they demand it more if they need it so my um daughter my third child and my fourth child they're only 18 and a half months apart and that was really hard for my my third child because she was essentially a baby when her sister was born and she to this day is the most demanding she requires the most one-on-one time and i i feel like a part of that is because she you know, figured out that she needed to make a lot more noise and to be more vocal about getting the attention she needed when she was a baby. And, you know, that's how now she, she operates and she gets that attention. So, you know, understanding all of those dynamics. And again, like, I guess it comes back to that inner work of the parent and trying to kind of put yourself in their shoes. And yeah, staying unruffled, like Janet says. And I do want to ask, about the inner work for the parent. But first, I think this comes up a lot. I've even questioned myself at times, especially in this year, transitioning with a new sibling, um, where you're, there are parents and carers out there listening to all the resources, reading all the books, and they're still having doubts. They're still wondering, why isn't this working for my little one? Or could something be going on that I'm not seeing? When, and you work with families and young children all the time, when do you think is a good time to reach out for help? And who are the kinds of people that you want to reach out to? And I'm thinking specifically about kind of behavioral stuff. Yeah, for behavioral stuff. So if your child is going to a childcare or a preschool, I think the the first place to start would be your child's teacher, because they have you know they have they see your child and experience your child every day but from a different perspective it's they're not the parent and so they might have some fresh ideas and perspectives um if you your child is not in school yet you know i would go with your intuition and your gut in my opinion and i guess there there are there's two different angles to look at this but for me at, at, with also with my own personality I tend to err on the side of caution and get things checked earlier. I, it's just like something that's important to me as a parent to know that I'm doing everything that I can to provide my children the best, whatever it is, education, life experience. And so whenever I've had any doubt or worry, I've, I think I, I start with like that inner work and contemplation, observing myself, questioning, and then reaching out to professionals and 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 it goes to show like I err on the side of caution I've reached out to multiple professionals over the years and nothing has there's never been a diagnosis or anything very specific maybe they're like one of my children gets um, a little bit of curative eurythmy at school um, because I do think her proprioception her sense of um, self in space is a little bit off but going with my gut has always helped. So also one of my girls had um, like a little bit of a lisp when she was younger and she had had a soother as a child. So I knew that, you know, part of that was having had the soother, she hadn't learned how to articulate properly. I went, I found a speech pathologist in my area. I took her to an appointment. They kind of assessed her, did a little like conventional assessment. And they said, yeah, she has the lisp, but if you model saying um, and ask properly for her, she can form that. And so just start by doing that at home. She's still 
quite young. And so, you know, we would model S's for her and ask her to um, repeat words and say, you know, snake her way and then our way, et cetera, et cetera. And it, it did resolve on its own. And so she never had formal um, therapy, but it made me feel better as a parent, knowing that I had done everything that I, I could do. And I had gone through those steps um, to have it assessed. And then, and then even if you get an assessment and you're not sure, and you're thinking, you know, I, I don't know, I think this is a little bit um, of an overkill, which sometimes I've also experienced, um, you know, then you can go and see another um, professional and, and have like get a second opinion, or maybe just wait it out a few months and see if it resolves or if something shifts or changes. But having um, all of those options and those professionals, I think is so wise. And there's this so much pressure on parents to be everything themselves and to do everything themselves when there's also, you know, more than ever in human history, there are so many resources and so many experts that have studied this like one field for 15, 20 years. So why not also tap into those? Yeah, so reaching out for a second opinion is, it's just so helpful. And you can never go wrong. And yeah, that combination of following your intuition and your gut, and then reaching out for help. And then if again, if it just doesn't seem right, reaching out to someone else, you can wait a little while longer. Yeah, that's, that's always been my philosophy. And I feel it's, uh, it's helped our family. And it's just helped my own personality, because I tend to be like on the anxious side. And so I always want to be doing the best for my children, like so many of us do. It's a much more um, comforting for me to know that I've done all that I can when I feel that something's off. Thank you so much for that. I feel like that's really pretty reassuring for a lot of parents to hear um, that every, I think every parent too goes through, whether you, you know, wind up with the diagnosis or not, there is probably a moment in every parent and carer's journey where they think, hmm, like, is this normal? I, I feel like I've thought that about both of my kids already so many times. And part of that is, you know, we're not in community as much as we really probably should be many of us anyways, especially during this time. So mm -hmm. that's another piece that I think could be yeah. very and helpful. Not, for and parents like and what is normal, you know, like, um, I think that's been a journey that I've been on is like, we're all different. And there are different aspects that there's just different parts of my children that might need extra support in, in a certain area. And they might be really strong in another area compared to their siblings or their peers, but there might be another area where and some kind of extra support would be beneficial as well. So trying not like trying to take that stigma away from asking for help or exploring different options for your children is also helpful. Yes. And thank you for that. So I'm wondering as you wrap up here, what some of your favorite resources are for children at this age group. You talked about a couple of already. I'm going to try to link all of them on the show notes page for this episode. And then of course, and I may ask you again, if you forget, you have to talk about your autumn course that you have coming up starting September 30th. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would recommend I mean, there's so many different things that you can, it's hard to know where to begin. But if you're looking for uh, some simple ways to bring Waldorf into your home, uh, my autumn course that I'm launching really helps with uh, tuning your 
your daily rhythm, your weekly rhythm, your seasonal rhythms, and then we're specifically focusing on this autumn. I also highly recommend uh, Chinya Lu's work at We Nurture, and I think she has some basic courses on rhythm available, and all of her podcasts are beautiful as well, especially for um, early childhood, like this age group specifically. Sparkle stories, I like probably one of the most common themes that I talk about with uh, my clients because I do a lot of one-on-one coaching is rest time and nap time, especially when the child transitions out of nap time. And uh, I highly recommend if your child is three and a half or four, they might be ready for little audio stories. And Sparkle Stories are written by uh, David Sewell McCann, who is an, uh, used to be a Waldorf teacher, and they're really developmentally appropriate, beautiful, simple stories for children. And it's a great way to get that like 40 minutes of quiet time for you as the parent and also for the child. Uh, it just depends whether they're ready, but usually around three and a half, four, especially if they've had minimal media, they enjoy those a lot. And then I guess finally, just because I was scrolling on Instagram the other day and I saw it and it's so beautiful, um, there's an account called the Simple Living Collective, or maybe it's just Simple Living Collective. And there's all these beautiful um, tutorials and a big PDF um, that are seasonal. And that's if you are trying to find a way to do something beautiful and meaningful with your hands that like meaningful domestic work or domestic arts that we talked about at the beginning of this episode where the carer needs to be engaged in meaningful work and sometimes you know obviously there's the laundry and the cooking but if you're looking for something more artistic or more inspiring for you as a carer there's probably a lot in that package there that you could look at. Yes. And I totally forgot to ask you, and I had mentioned earlier that I was going to do this, about the inner work. I'm wondering if you can give just even a couple of quick suggestions for uh, parents to do a little bit of inner work. And you'd mentioned that actually as one of the things that we can do you know, at home with our young children. So what, what would you recommend as either steps to start that or resources to be helpful with that? Mm-hmm. For me, inner work is doing things that fill up my cup. And so it's the reflection and the introspection. And for like my personal practice right now is at the end of the day, you know, reflecting on what has happened, especially in my interactions with my children, what good I did and what, you know, great connections I had and then what moments didn't work and why. Um, and really asking myself, you know, what what happened there, what what didn't work and how can I do better tomorrow? Just that that consciousness and and the awareness that in every moment and interaction I have with my children, there is a way to shift it or change it. Or if something's not working, um, knowing that there that I you know am empowered enough to make a change. That awareness is is my like constant inner work. Then like the filling my cup or the things that I do for myself that make me feel good or that help me unwind. And so for me, like it's uh, weight training exercise, it's enjoying podcasts that have nothing to do with (laughs) Waldorf and early childhood, like subjects that are my own and that are just uh, for me and my own enjoyment and that aren't connected with childhood because especially parents um, in early childhood and and those parents that are so 
passionately and beautifully involved in their children's lives. It's like, what little part of yourself can you foster that is not connected to that? Um, I think that's really important. And then if you wanted to go into like more formal inner work, as was kind of indicated by Steiner or yeah, maybe like what the the teachers do. There are these beautiful meditations. Uh, I know Kim John Payne has a meditation that you can do. I think you can find it on YouTube. Um, meditating on your child each night if you're wanting something to shift. And then there's Steiner's. There's a like an actual book. I can't remember what it's called, but it's by my daughter's teacher Warren Lee Cohen, and he goes through the different meditations and practices that Steiner. Um, recommended for I think all humans, but especially the the teachers he recommended he do them. So you could look into that book as well. Amazing. And I did say I was going to come back to it. You have to talk about your autumn course that you have coming up, which is so exciting. Your first offering in what, like two years. So tell us all about it. Yeah, it is exciting. Uh, it the doors open. So the course is actually released on Monday, September 20th. And then like, there's going to be no more enrollments on September 30th. So I'm kind of giving the stragglers 10 more days to get in there. And essentially, we are just going through uh, everything that I could think of to set you up for a beautiful autumn that's filled with like routine, rhythm, ritual, and reverence. So tying all of like the practicalities together, how can you set yourself up for a great year, whether your children are in school or not, but like creating that strong home rhythm and the routines that you need to keep everything kind of ticking and going from like a practical standpoint from laundry and packing lunches and meal planning, and then adding in the rituals. So you've got that really great kind of bedtime routine going, but then where does that like meaning and wonder and magic happen in the bedtime routine? Will you light a candle or say a blessing with your children or tell a little story? And so each uh, week we kind of break down, we start with just like back to rhythm basics, just really looking at what is in place already for you. And then um, we move week to week more into overall family traditions and creating those kind of more more rituals and spaces for rhythms. And uh, and then there's a, a one week on self-care alone. So that self-care, that's kind of the, the inner work piece. Um, what are you doing to fill up your own cup as a parent or a carer? And yeah, there's like over 100 people already signed up. They're mostly mothers, but I think there's a few fathers and caregivers as well. And we have um, a private group. It's like a Facebook page, but it's not because <laughs> I didn't want to go on Facebook. And so there's a little bit of um, group support where people can share what they've been doing, what changes they've been making, and just stay a little bit more accountable and get that group support. And then there's also some group coaching calls with me. There's three group coaching calls where I'm going to just answer um, as many questions as I can and really get to everyone's individual needs, as well as having um, access to email email support. So there's lots of um, different ways that you can get that support you need. And yet, even though it, it's a course for everyone, it can be fine tuned and like individualized so much because that was really important to me. I know everyone's 
um, home life and culture and values are so different. And so I wanted to make it adaptable um, to each unique family. Oh, that's the best. And I'm so, I would be so excited to not go on Facebook. I'm sick of Facebook. It's, I'm having a really hard time with my relationship with social media. I like don't want to, but also I want to. I know. And my Facebook page was a big business no-no, but it was a mental health yes. So Yeah, yeah. But this is also, we talked earlier about how community is so important. And I do feel there is value in connecting with people that really bring you joy and light. And social media can be a way to do that. I know certainly I've connected with you through social media and you have brought so mm-hmm. much joy and light and wisdom to my life and parenting. So um, I hope that others will find that in your course as well. So this episode is either going to be Uh, going live on the 21st or 28th of September. So if you are listening right now, you do not have very much time to sign up for this course uh, and (laughs) you have to get on it. So again, what is the link so everybody knows where to go? Yeah. So if you go to store.meganroseWilson.com, you'll find it. Or if you go to my Instagram page, uh, Megan Rose Wilson, the link in the profile will take you directly to the course. Yay. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining me again on the show, Megan. Thank you for having me again. I always love chatting with you. Thank you all so much for listening in. As a reminder, and I mentioned it earlier at the beginning of this episode, you can get free shipping for your order at sakurabloom.com by using the coupon code WALDORFI at checkout. Don't forget that you can also get 15% off your order at oki.com by using the coupon code WALDORFI15 at checkout. Know that the show notes and resources page for this episode can be found at waldorfie.com forward slash early childhood. Big thanks to Waldorfie podcast partners, Palumba and Sparkle Stories for helping me to bring this content to you. You can shop Palumba's selection of Waldorf toys, books, and art supplies at palumba.com and be sure to visit sparklestories.com forward slash sign up to check out Sparkle Stories. And don't forget to use the coupon code Waldorfie there for the special for Waldorfie listeners so that you can get access to an extended 30-day free trial of their incredible selection of original audio stories crafted to entertain and enrich your child's developing mind. A super special thanks to our generous Waldorfie Patreon supporters. You can check out patreon.com forward slash Waldorfie to learn more about becoming a supporter. Another great way to support the show is by writing a review. The best place to do this is Apple Podcasts, although technically you can write reviews on most podcast listening platforms. You can also subscribe to the show. That's the best compliment that you'd like to listen to each and every episode. You can also support by following along on social media. You can find Waldorfie at bwaldorfie, that's B-E Waldorfie on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. But I'm definitely the most active on Instagram. Big thanks again to all of you listening. Be well.